Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Ben Francis. He's the CEO and founder of Gymshark. Bootstrapping a company from nothing to a multi-billion dollar valuation at a young age isn't easy. Starting a family with twins whilst navigating a changing political landscape and supply tensions from the East makes this even harder. But there are some principles Ben has developed to survive this chaos. Expect to learn what three traits Ben has observed in all of the high performers he's met, how his upbringing helped shape him into a successful CEO, Ben's thoughts on modern masculinity, how what the world needs from fitness culture has changed, the biggest red flags to watch out for when recruiting new talent in a business, what founders don't know about the challenges of being a CEO, and much more. I've been talking about this live show thing for a little while now, and we've got dates and we've got locations. Dublin, Thursday the 16th of November, Manchester, Friday the 17th of November, and London, Saturday the 18th of November. I will be there. Go to chriswilliamson.live right now to sign up for tickets. They're going on sale this Thursday, and if you sign up, you will get first access. Those are the only dates that we are adding for now. There will be lots more coming next year. But for now, it is Dublin, Manchester, or London. So if you fancy coming to see me, head to chriswilliamson.live. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've won Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything 24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand, and fantastic fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop, and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free, pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap, plus you get your first month for free, and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modern wisdom. This episode is brought to you by AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Even with the best diet in the world, it is hard to make sure that you get everything that you need. And through a science-driven formulation, vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced nutrients, AG1 delivers comprehensive support for the brain, gut, 
and immune system. This is why Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and Dr. Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss are all massive fans. They have tried every other product out there like I have, and this is by far the best one available. Since 2010, AG1 have improved the formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible through high quality ingredients and rigorous standards. Also, there's a 90-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 89 days. And if you don't like it, they'll just give you your money back. Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Ben Francis. You have had the fortune of speaking to some of the best operators on the planet. Mm -hmm. What are the common threads, the most common traits that you found between all of the high performers that you've spoken to? I feel like there's the obvious ones. So they're very organized. I feel like there's the basics, right? Organized, articulate, intelligent, the things that you'd expect of anyone who's a, a great operator. I also think that they tend to be better people than what you think for the most part. I feel like there's this, there's this view that there's this evil group of people that sit and control the world in a way. And, I'm, you know, that might well be true for, all, for all, all I know. But certainly in the people that have run some of the really successful businesses, they tend to be really, really great people and great individuals and really, really helpful. And a lot of those people have really helped me. And there's... Um, I mean, people will know that Gymshark has had a great relationship with Shopify for a long, long time. And Toby, and particularly Harley, who run that business, have been endlessly helpful to both me as an individual, I mean, even other people that work in the business, but our business as well. Um, and I think Harley really resonated with me, and he continues to resonate with me, because he is such a good human being. And the, the fact that he has such a well-balanced work life, but also home life, I think is that's really interesting to me, and it's been massively inspiring. What's an example of Harley's work and home life showing up in a way that you found inspirational? Well, there, well, there's a few. I mean, there's many. But the first and foremost, I think this, this is going to sound so basic and some of these are going to sound so trivial, but he's always happy to see you, like, which, is, which is really cool, right? And I think he remembers people's names and there's those sorts of common traits. And he will not remember this by any stretch of the imagination. But we were working in Germany a few years ago, a few, a few years ago, this was pre-COVID now, um, and I think there was something particularly he had to do. It was like, say, 9 p.m. or something like that. We'd been working through the day. We did, like, the talks and the events and all that. And then everyone went for food after. There was probably a table of 12 or so people. Um, but I knew that he had, had to get off by, let's say, 9 o'clock. And it was actually it was a really good conversation. It was a really good chat. And I think everyone was really interested in him because there was a lot of Shopify's largest merchants there. And literally, like clockwork, at 8.59, he stands up, shakes everyone's hand, he knows everyone's name, and he heads off and he goes to bed and just sort of carries on with his day. And that level of efficiency albeit to him which is probably just something that was so basic and normal to me that was that was really that was really interesting because it would have been so easy to stay another 30 minutes another 45 minutes and another hour and i know the things that he wanted to do by the way is he wanted to get off because he wanted to speak to his family and he wanted to prepare for the next day and i think those little things over a prolonged period of time really add up and and being able to watch him and observe him do that i think was interesting um and it, listen, it's, it's similar of other people. There's, um, there's a guy who, who's based in London that runs 
I think it might be the world's biggest digital marketing agency, a company called AKQA, a guy called Ajars, who is just like a really, really good human being. And he just, he, he seems to maintain relationships with people over a really, really long period of time. And that doesn't happen on accident. And by the way, bad people, in my experience, aren't able to maintain relationships with people for really prolonged periods of time. So having met lots of different people, I would say I've definitely been pleasantly surprised with the fact that they generally tend to be good people rather than bad people. We were talking about this before we started, this conversation I had with Hormozy, where he said Mm -hmm. that uh, ego will keep you poor rather than make you rich. Mm -hmm. And... I don't know, man. You know, a lot of the people that I spend time with, the operators that are slick and that are able to do it over a long enough period of time, mm. by design, if you're a prick to everyone, mm-hmm. you'll get found out. Yeah. I really believe that. And I think there's, 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 there's this other thing as well. And again, just to put into context is Shopify is a business that's I don't know, it must be 40 times, 50 times bigger than Gymshark minimum. I don't Do you know, know what, what its revenues are? Yeah. I, I don't know what its revenues are, but it's, I know it's, it's just vastly, vastly bigger than Gymshark. And, you know, we might never, ever be at the, si- the size or scale that they are. And I'm sure I've got a very limited amount of information that I can give to someone like Harley that he hasn't already heard from people that are far more intelligent, articulate. Remembering so that Harley, Harley and Toby's company is the company that facilitates your company. Correct. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're like the, the grandchild of, of, of the Shopify business. And I, yes. I, they might. I don't, I don't know that. If they're not, then they're one of the biggest employers in Canada. But I feel like every time that we're talking, he is trying to learn something from me and I'm trying to learn something from you. There's not this whole thing of, oh, here he is, here's small fry, I know everything. It, it's that mentality of always being open to learning. I thought, and it always surprises me. It's the same with the jars as well. It's always like, what are you seeing? What are you interested in? What excites you? What mistakes have you made? And then I'll obviously talk them through that and they'll sort of help me out and give me feedback. But this consistent way of being open-minded as well i think that's really fascinating talk to me about the problems that you have of being a person with opinions Mm. who has a private life who has a missus who now has a pair of Mm. twins congratulations uh and and you have insights and views around the world Mm. and yet as a young guy you also have to play the role of being a very sanitized very public facing acceptable don't rock the boat ceo do you ever find conflict between those two things yeah absolutely and i try to manage it in in the right way because you're right i've got very specific opinions on things and for example my opinion on the lord hill review i don't feel the need to run off on youtube and scream about it we write a very logical very formulated letter to the government and to be fair to them they respond right and we have a we have an ongoing dialogue I'm not going to move the needle. I'm not going to change anything. They probably don't care what I've got to say. But at least I've done my bit, right? So I, I'll i put my opinion forward in, in the right way, in the right place. And there are certain things that I would like to talk about publicly because of, you know, where it's the content I consume, the things that I read, and, and the, I guess my viewpoints on, the, on certain things. But then again, I also see other people... Um, again, without naming names, that come from a completely different industry and then started talking about politics. And I think just stay in your lane. Like you don't know what you're talking about. So I want to make sure that if I ever do talk about certain things, I want to make sure that it's a really well thought out opinion. I'm completely bulletproof. I completely believe in it and back, you know, back what I'm talking about. Um, But you're right, being a CEO of a a consumer-focused business, you know, we want to 
we want our product to be available to everyone and we want lots of different types of people to buy our product and I don't want to alienate anyone because of my personal views and rightly or wrongly I am intrinsically linked to the company I founded when I was a teenager and I think that's just I think I don't see how that would ever change and I would love to talk more publicly about certain things um but as I'm sure you're aware of the more you speak the higher the level of risk and ultimately the the higher likelihood you have of alienating certain people at some point I guess for me it's just the at what point do I make that decision what do you are you bothered you know could you go the rest of your life having private opinions mm. that are kept private or do you feel uh, a bit of discomfort about the fact that you don't get to maybe proselytize about stuff that you do personally genuinely care about but maybe uh the sort of thing that and we're not you know we're not talking about like mm. you're not going to go full Kanye here yeah, like yeah. the point is just that you have viewpoints yeah. personally and the world has uh lost the ability to take someone's viewpoint in good faith a lot right. of the time yeah. and would read into it it's for instance right so um the Rogan N-word compilation video from a, a year ago a couple of years ago what the world attempted to do there was say See, here is the tip of the iceberg that mm -hmm. proves that Joe is the unspeakable, bigoted, racist, misogynistic heathen that we've always said he was. Yeah. The way that this usually works is that there are vacuums in terms of what you know about a person. Mm -hmm. There is a small incident that occurs that the press and people that don't like them take as being representative of the entirety of their being. Mm -hmm. They say, this is the tip of the iceberg. Below it is this sort of murky cesspool of, of terrible things that they believe. Mm -hmm. The reason that Joe particularly was protected was that most people have seen the entire iceberg. Yeah. You know, I've listened to casually, you know, 500, 1,000, even a normal fan will have listened to hundreds of hours yeah. of this guy. And yeah. they go, look, you're telling me that there's something lurking down there. I've been down there. I know that there's nothing lurking. Mm -hmm. However, when you have perhaps l not thousands and thousands of hours of content on the internet mm -hmm. when you have more um, vectors of potential attack, which mm -hmm. is a 900,000 person company, shareholders, stakeholders, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. There is more of a risk there. Yeah. Rather than being an individual. And I'd, I think, I mean, the, the best example that I think I would use that I know we spoke about earlier would be Jeremy Clarkson whether you like him or not, he made some comments about Meghan Markle and Prince Harry a few weeks ago. And there was a lot of conversation about whether or not his farm show was going to be cancelled. Now, I think the people that wanted the farm show cancelled were probably staring at Jeremy Clarkson. We don't like this. Waiting for him to say anything. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we want Jeremy Clark. We want to take Jeremy Clarkson down. And ironically, if that show is cancelled, he's probably affected the least out of everyone. It's the hundred people that edit, produce, develop, farm. It's the people that all contribute to the show that are actually genuinely hurt. And that's the interesting balance of being a public individual that has an opinion, but also wanting to protect the wider group of individuals that you work alongside. So it is, it is definitely a difficult line to balance. And I'd love to see, I'm interested if you know anyone that does it particularly well, because I'm, and don't get me wrong, I don't lie there at night thinking, oh God, I wish I could tell everyone about my political views. I'm, it, it's not that big of a deal to me. Like I think I said yeah. to you previously, I, my intention when starting Gymshark was never to be on social media. It, 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 I'm not massively fussed. I think the point at which I would get involved is if things either got significantly worse than what they are now, or I genuinely felt I could move the needle. Like I made a passing comment a moment ago of, 
I'll send a letter to the government with my opinion. Realistically, it won't move the needle. If you said to me, a YouTube video could move the needle on something that's particularly important to you, you're mm-hmm. passionate about mm-hmm. and you think would mm-hmm. help people. Now, I think that would probably change my opinion mm. at the moment. I just don't think I've gotten to that point. Just generally, personally, what is it that founders don't know about the challenges of being a CEO? Because this oh, well, is where a, do I begin? a journey that I know yeah. that you've been on, you've flip-flopped in and out of. So the thing, so the thing is with being a founder is... the job which i've never known in any of the job the job literally flips on its head depending on the scale of the business and the time so it's almost like there's peace time there's war time and then the scale and the your approach has to be completely different and to get a business from zero to 10 million you essentially have to be very very dictatorial you tell people what you want people will tell you this isn't going to work you ignore comments, you ignore feedback, and you do what the hell you want, and you force your business into success. This is my experience, right? I'm sure there are other people that have had different experiences, but that was my personal experience. Why? Why do you need to be dictatorial? You have no time. You take high level of risk. There is no, there's no time for discussion. Generally, what you're trying to do hasn't been done before. There's no data to back up what you're thinking. You need to grow quick. Okay. And like, listen, we... In that period, there were several times that we risked everything we had to get to that next level. And oftentimes the risks make no sense because, again, in in the, and granted the numbers are, the numbers are smaller, right? But it's a case of we're doing 250,000 in revenue. Our ambition one day is to do 4 million in revenue. You need to risk the entire house on hopefully getting to 1 million. What were some of those inflection points? So for me, it was the first events that we did. So we did one event, it did well. And what you normally do in a larger business is you do an event, it does well, you sit there, you analyze the data, you understand what the ROI would be if you were to do five more. It's like, no, like in the early days, in that one to 10, that purely entrepreneurial phase, that gut instinct phase is you do have, you have no time to do any of those. So we did our first event, it went well. We then signed up to loads of events. And then we went from just doing Birmingham to Birmingham, Germany, Australia, uh, two in the US. Was this when you exited Body Power? Yes. Uh, no, this, wasn't, this, wasn't, this wasn't when we exited Body Power. We did Body Power and it went really well. So we re-signed up for Rolled Body it Power out. and then we kept going. And, Got you. And there, there was a point, I think it was about two years after that, where we'd managed, we'd basically managed to get about a million pounds in the bank. And I, you know, being in the West Midlands and having a company with a million pound in the banks, that I'd never heard of anything like it. It was the most insane thing ever in our early 20s. And at that point, you've sort of got something to lose. I'm like, oh, well, like, you know, if we if we just gave up now and we just split the money, million pounds. Like, you know, mom and dad's mortgage is paid. I could live happily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe not now, but it feels like you could live happily ever after. And then we bet the entire house on going again and stock on events. And you do that again and again and again and then and this is what i mean from naught to 10 you essentially do what the hell you want 10 to 50 is that bit where you have an understanding of the fact that you've actually got something to lose because for me between one and ten there was nothing to lose 10 to 50 in revenue there was certainly something to lose but you filled with this adrenaline this excitement and this and this momentum that you just do it and you just go and at that point you're really starting to hire people so the the whole thing of ignoring what everyone says it just starts to go away because if you're doing 50 million in revenue, you're doing a million a week, the likelihood is you probably have a handful of staff that are helping you manage that. If you just ignore what they say and do what you want anyway, 
then going back to what we said earlier, that, has a, that only has a certain period of time that that can work for. And then what you find is the larger the business gets, the more that you rely on other people, the more or the less that you're in the detail. And then the more that going off and doing becomes either more explaining and inspiring as the business grows. So it's, I don't, I mean, very occasionally, but I don't really, I would never sit in front of a sewing machine anymore. But, and I don't sit down and sketch out products and try and work out exactly what I want, but I need to work out, and this is, this is my big challenge now, right? Trying to scale Gymshark into a truly iconic British brand and a global brand is how do I inspire people to create product that fits in with our overarching strategy that I'm really proud of and pleased about that also excites the customer and is of a high quality and it's all of these things and trying to get the right people in the right right roles and there's always so many emotions involved and conversations because other people have differing views and what I can't do again is just go it's my way or the highway because that only has a, a certain lifespan to it so the development of being a small entrepreneurial business, which is a lot of telling to a large scale business that works with people from all around the world, deals with tens and tens of millions of units of stock, has relatively large financial risk compared to where we were previously. Um, and is trying to become an iconic brand that is now competing with some of the biggest brands in the world that have bank balances that are 10, 100 times larger than ours. That's where it becomes a fascinating thing because it's more about it becomes significantly more of an intellectual and social challenge than it does this just sort of adrenaline-filled thing. Mm, do you miss that? Not really. There's times I do, but when I actually sit down and think about it logically, I get to sit in an air-conditioned office and travel the world now. Whereas before, when you're screen printing and it's November and it's minus three and the hose pipe's frozen over and you're trying to clean off the screen... It's easy to say, oh, and romanticize those times and say, oh, I love those times. They were so exciting, which they were. Like my first time going out to Ohio. I've never been to Ohio in my life and didn't bring any coats or warm weather on a land in December and it is freezing and I've never seen snow like it. And those are cool, romantic memories of the growth. And whilst I do enjoy it, it's easy to forget about how hard those times were and forget about the fact that there was once a point when I was stood in L.A., just about to get on a flight home. And I thought that when I landed home, there wouldn't be a business to go to. And I was trying to work out, do I go back to uni? Do I go and get another job? Do I go and try and start again? All of these different things. So it's easy to romanticize the early days. And it's easy to think, oh, my job now is hard and it's cumbersome and it's slower than what it used to be. Um, but I'm an eternal optimist. So I would say, I would like to think that it's the best now it's ever been. There will be a lot of people listening that are side hustling, building a business from that naught to 10 million stage. Mm. During that time, for businesses that are maybe uh, less consumer focused than yours, mm -hmm. but for many, they'll need to relinquish control. Mm. They will start being the person that does everything. Mm -hmm. And even if you're at one mil or two mil, like yeah. you, you can't be the person that does everything. You can be hard charging, telling everyone to do it. Yeah. What is your advice to people that struggle to delegate, that struggle to relinquish control, that mm. struggle to bring people in underneath them and, and have the faith that they're going to do it? Well, I think the first thing I would say is I think you need to really understand yourself. Because for me, I, I, I was fortunate in the sense that I managed to work out what I'm good at fairly quickly. And then literally, it's quite simple. These are the things I'm good at. These are the things I'm bad at. Draw a line between the two. Outsource the things that you're bad at. And I also think that you don't want 
don't be precious about those things. Those things could be simple, they could be complex, but go off and find people that can do it and get the best people that you can afford. I think in the early days, I think that's really, really important. So in in the very early days of Gymshark, I was well aware that I didn't really understand operations, logistics, finance, and quite frankly, people anywhere near as well as I needed to. So brought in uh, a great CEO and he was chief exec for, I think, five or six years. I think six years, Steve was. And he managed all of those things for so me. So your, your incompetence was a competitive advantage in that regard Correct. because you felt like you, you didn't have any ownership. You already knew where your weaknesses lay. Yeah. They were staring you in the face. Mm-hmm. So there was no problem with relinquishing that control to someone that was evidently much better than you at it. Which is easy to do if your ambitions for the business are larger than your, than your ambitions for yourself. Because the risk... What do you mean? If your ambitions for your business are larger than your personal ambitions, then you will put yourself into any role necessary for the business to succeed. If your ambitions are larger for yourself than your business, then you will ensure that you're at the top of the business at all costs because your personal ambition is to be top dog. The thing, the reason that having Steve come in as CEO was particularly helpful for me was it almost had a bit of a flywheel effect because Steve came in and covered my weaknesses instantly. So from a business perspective, you get a huge tick because Ben's now not doing things he's not very good at. Ben's only doing things that he's good at. And we've got someone who's very good, Steve, at doing the things that Ben's not very good at. So almost like in the list of things to do, you can almost tick everything then. The next thing that that had is it meant I could not only double down on my strength, so I would move deeper into the business. And I actually ended up doing a chief of brand job, a marketing job, a tech job, and a product job. So I got C-suite experience across four different parts of the business. And I have sat in factories. I've you know sat across the table from people like Google and Facebook and Shopify, worked with athletes, been to pretty much every event that we ever ran. I got to do all of these things which are very, very few people get the experience and, and the, you know, the opportunity to do. But then I could also sit with our CFO and our CEO and learn about finance and ops and go to distribution centers and warehouses and things like that. And I could sit with our CFO and I could say stupid things that made completely no sense. I could ask stupid questions knowing that if anything went wrong, there was essentially this safety net beneath me of both the cfo and the ceo someone who's less incompetent which is perfect right because what you want if you want if you want to improve rapidly it's a bit like if someone gave you a test if you're doing your a levels now and you can do the test once you'd probably do relatively well you give the test a go you get a c but then you get the test again and you get a c plus and then i'll give you the same test again and you get a b and then slowly but surely you get better and better and then we'll try another test and that's what it felt like to me I had five years of failure without, without consequence. And that is, if you could, if you had a magic wand and you could draw the perfect environment for learning, it would be failure without consequence because you can literally just throw yourself at anything that you want at any given moment. How learn. could, uh, have you got any advice for, that sounds fantastic, failure without consequence is, is amazing for a learning and iterating process. Is there any advice that you would have for how somebody could integrate this either into personal, professional, business life so that they could do this more and iterate on that learning process? As an owner or... Yeah. And I think it's worked in any role, right? So if, for example, you have have an overarching role that, let's say, for example, requires 50% creativity and 50% organization, I'm, I'm just making up a job here. 
And let's say you're the opposite of me. You're a highly conscientious, organized individual that gets everything done that you need to do, but then you're not maybe creative and you haven't got the ability to think about what's new and what's, what, what the next thing is. Then what I would implore you to do is to find that individual and partner yourself very closely with that individual, not only so that you can learn from them, but also so that they're filling your gaps and your weaknesses. And I also think... And I don't know how this works. I don't know if it's easier for a creative to become organized than it is someone that's conscientious to become creative. I don't, I would say it's easier for a creative to become organized. I would say so too. The other way around. So maybe I'm quite lucky from that perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, But equally, some of the best business people I've met are the opposite of me. They're not that creative. They're just highly driven, organized, bold, good at taking risks. That's because if you had a business filled with you, you would have fantastic ideas, but nothing would get done. Correct. Correct. I look at um, video guy Dean's been to my house in Austin and Mm. I live with Zach and he couldn't be more different Mm -hmm. to me in terms of his sort of psychological personality makeup. He plays five different instruments. He's like Mm. super, super creative, girlfriend, an artist, et cetera, et cetera. And you can see a physical manifestation of our two personalities when you walk into each of our studios that back Mm. into each other. So you go into mine and everything is neat and tidy. I press three buttons and all of the lights come on. It's mm-hmm. it's very, very dialed. I walk into his, there's been a sock sellotaped to his wall from the first day that he moved in. I have no idea why it's there. Neither does he. There'll yeah. be like banana peels around the place. It's yeah. like a like a Tom and Jerry cartoon. So I would probably be closer to that. I think so. Albeit I've had to try myself to be more organized through whether it's working with great people, whether it's as stupid as using the right applications and things like that and trying to organize myself. What's the biggest risk that you've taken with Gymshark over its entire lifespan, do you think? Um, I think it, I think it all varies, doesn't it? So the, the first events that we ever did, because we risked everything on the event being successful, and if the event weren't successful, then we would have run out of money. So that that's without a doubt one. I mean, personally, leaving... Like I was the first person in my family to ever go to university. I didn't finish university, but that whole thing of calling calling up my mom and dad and going, you know, this thing I've worked really, really hard for, I'm now going to leave it. That that was a personal risk, albeit not a financial risk. Um, so, and we've done, we've had plenty of financial risks. Ten, they tended to be earlier on in the process. Um, those would be the main ones. Again, this is going to sound really bad but the financial risks never really frightened me too much and the reason for that is is when i was when i was a young kid i did um the first ever i guess experience of work for me was working on work experience for my granddad my granddad lines furnaces in the midlands so brick ceramic fiber laboring job i basically just did labor labor for him and he would tell me and he's a one-man band it's it's not by no means a, a huge business um but he loved, he loves what he does, right? And he would tell me about how he risked everything he had on a job where he was basically building a furnace that was due to be sent out to Germany. And for whatever reason, there was this point in the process where it could have gone horrifically wrong. And he would tell me from the age of, I don't know, 12, 13, 14, very young anyway, about he would sit there and think, am I going to have a roof to put over the my mom, her sister, my nan's head? And when you've been when that's been drilled into you from a young child that my family have taken those risks and that level of risk. And I spent a lot of time with my grandparents growing up because my mum worked nights in the NHS and my dad would often work away and things like that. 
the, the risks that I then take aren't, aren't that big. So the take a million quid at 22 years old on events when worst case I can go back to university and get another job at Pizza Hut. It, it never felt frightening in a way. It was more exciting. Do you think that that's because of your optimistic mindset? Yes, and high, high level for risk tolerance. I think I get, I get, I really enjoy things like that. Like risks like that really excite me. That's something that I'm trying to get better at, um, taking risks. I'm, my disposition is very, very uh, conservative, iterate mm. very slowly. Uh, it's meant that I've basically made zero mistakes ever when it comes to business. But yeah. the fact that I've made zero mistakes is probably an indication that I should have made, taken more risk on. Yeah. Um, that's something, again, British culture, I think I would say very much discourages risk. Yeah. Overall, very, very just softly, softly, slowly, slowly, like, mm-hmm. you know, limit, limit your uh, potential upside, but also massively limit your downside yeah. as much as you can. We've spoken a lot about sort of business, the operations of business, but like fundamentally what you are doing is encouraging fitness mm-hmm. in the world, right? Yeah. Like it's facilitating people uh, feeling better about their bodies, thinking about the way that they train, the way that they show up, not only just the physical, but now moving into the mental mm-hmm. as well. What is different about what the world needs from fitness content now mm-hmm. compared to when you started? Very. So I think... And I'm speaking about the content I consumed, right? So as a kid, I was skinny and I just wanted to build muscle. That was it. Like, I'm not going to sit here and go on like I had some greater goals around fitness personally. I wanted to be ripped, muscular, pretty much like every other 18-year-old guy that was probably around during that era. I was inspired by Greg Plitt. I was inspired by Ziz. That 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 was my, like, Rob Riches, people like that. Like Not necessarily the big bodybuilders, but the people that were ripped and shredded. And that, that was my personal ambition. And it felt like that that was very much definitely the bodybuilding industry was definitely around that because even if you think if we think if i think back to when i first got into fitness the big bodybuilders didn't really get into social media they were almost like they almost looked down their nose a little bit at that new era of people that were coming up um so when i think back to that era and then you had the matt ogases and the chris lovado this is where jim shot started to come along a few years later when i think of that era of people versus now it's interesting because it feels like the mental element has come a lot more into it. And I, I, when I talk about the mental element, I feel like people talk about mental health all the time and I do think it's important, but it's it's so much more about, it's almost like maximizing your potential holistically rather than, you know, having a good mental health and good physical health. I would say it's like, it feels slightly harder now and more direct than what it was. And it also feels a little bit to me like, male mental health seems to be being talked about a hell of a lot more than what it was previously. Um, and I don't know how to put this in a more masculine way. Um, how do you mean? I think when you think about people like Andrew Huberman and the things that he talks about and the way that it feels a bit like, people are men are being encouraged to be more manly for lack of a better term and i don't see that as a negative by the way i think i think that's a massive massive positive whereas i'm not saying that there was an opposite before but i just felt like that thing didn't exist and i think that it's interesting because over the years before it was how many bicep curls do i need to do a week to have big arms 
it's almost like everyone knows that now. And if you want it, if if you don't know that, if you're a young sixteen year old kid joining the gym, you'll work that out within a week on YouTube. Yeah. So then people are now going a lot deeper in this in in terms of like, okay, so how how do I become a better man in general rather than just how do I have bigger muscles? Mm, how do I show up in the world? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really nice way to frame it. That previously, you know, when we were starting training, it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, the misc forum on bodybuilding.com spent a lot of time there abused on there as well i bet you did uh like christian thibodeau t nation like all of this like that kind of world no one knew what macros were no one knew if blueberry extract was actually going to be the secret to your muscle gains then it was very bro sciencey and it was like if you don't have a protein shake within 30 minutes of finishing the gym you will lose all of your gains and you need to have your creatine every 30 minutes and you've got your pre-workout your intra workout your pro and it was just like to the point where i remember shoving hyperbolic mass down my throat in a bid to somehow gain weight whereas now that whole world just seems to have it just completely has changed and Correct. and weirdly enough i mean certainly in the, the areas that i spend time on on social media now it's far more around a genuinely good diet, a good organic diet that is balanced with a balanced level of fitness that probably incorporates some weight training, but also incorporates a level of, uh, incorporates a level of cardio. Yep. And it feels like a more balanced approach to fitness now. I would agree. So when we're talking about um, integrating men, masculinity, mm-hmm. uh, and how it's not just about turning up and looking good. It's not just about talking about mental health. And I had a problem for ages for the people that are listening from the US. There was a campaign in the UK called It's Okay to Talk, right? Mm. And this was trying to encourage men to open up about mental health. And I always felt icky about it. I always just, it didn't resonate with me. Mm. I thought, I, I'm very passionate about mental health, suffered yeah. with bouts of depression throughout all of my 20s, mm-hmm. um, was the person that needed to be spoken to by this. Mm-hmm. And yet it takes, you know, like a Canadian psychologist or a Stanford professor or mm-hmm. like a bald MMA commentator yeah. or a neuroscientist that's into meditation to start talking to me in a way that made me genuinely consider my mental health. What I've reflected on, the reason I didn't like it's okay to talk is, well, fucking no surprise like obviously it's okay to talk like what's the next step like give me something that i can actually use here and the other side of it and this i learned from adam lane smith great psychotherapist he said that male depression gets treated like female depression Mm -hmm. men are made to feel loved and accepted when they want to feel capable and powerful Mm -hmm. and the problem that we had there was that you were treating male depression and male mental health like female depression yeah it's interesting as well, me and me and Noel talk about this quite a lot as well, in the sense that if I think of growing up, so I had a, I had a great upbringing, right? I remember there was a few years ago, someone stuck a camera in front of me on Gymshark's come up and said, tell me about your terrible upbringing and how difficult it had been. And everyone that said no, and I was like, I'm not doing this because I had a brilliant upbringing. I've got great parents, great grandparents. And when I think to the way my mum raised me in a very caring, loving, thoughtful way, and then I think about the lessons that my dad taught me. There's two things that really stand out. This is going to sound really basic. Once I rode my bike over my neighbor's lawn and he grabbed me around the scruff of the neck and he said, you respect other people's property. You never do that again. You go and apologize. And it was very much tough love. And that, that for me was the, the male role model was be tough, be strong, be respectful. And there was another, there's another one. And I remember when I was re- I'd done something wrong and I was really, I'd completely fucked up and I was so upset. 
And I don't, my mum wasn't there for whatever reason. And I was expecting my dad to sort of come and go, you know, Ben, everything's going to be all right. And he just sat there and he went, well, what are you going to do about it? And that feeling of, Ben, you have to be strong. You have to take control of the situations and you have to take control. And he always told me, he said, you, you know, you have to be mentally strong. You have to be mentally strong. It was something that was drilled into me from a young age. But that thing of, I don't want to be coddled. I want, I just want the truth and I want to know what I've got to do. I'll work it out in my own head how I get there. But I just, and that, I think that speaks back to that thing that you've just said of, it's, it feels like it's much, things have to be much more tangible. What are you going to do about it? Rather than I don't want someone personally, and maybe I'm different to others, I don't want put someone just to sit there and stroke my ego and tell me that everything's going to be okay and I'm okay the way I am. Because I think that over a prolonged period of time can definitely lead to entitlement. I think it can lead to softness and weakness, and I don't think it's the right thing in the long term. Certainly not for me. It's one of the problems that you have between male and female communication. All mm. of the guys that are in relationships will know that sometimes they're having a conversation with their missus and mm. they are trying to offer up solutions, yeah. which every time that they offer up a potential solution infuriates the conversation more. Yeah. And this is because men are speaking to women in the way that they would want to be spoken to, mm -hmm. which is find me a solution. Yeah. On average, there are feminine men and there are masculine women, but... On average, it's what's the solution? How can we move forward about this? And there is a large chunk of girls who want to be heard. Mm -hmm. Just look, hear the things that I'm saying. Maybe we can talk about the, the the solutions a little bit further down the line. But for now, I just want to be able to like make me feel like you you understand and you hear what I'm saying. And you're there laying out a tactical operational yeah. plan of what it is. Yeah. So I think that that's an interesting arc that we're talking about here going from what's the first level of, of like, you know, male development, which maybe came about perhaps due to men starting to feel like they uh, were less required, you know, 2006 to 2012, you are uh, more visible online. Mm -hmm. um, just generally as a man, people are yeah. starting to scrutinize the way that you look, you're able to compare yourself to people. But wasn't this the point where obesity, obesity became a thing in the early 2000s where everyone sort of said, I think it was, it was at the point where the US became, it was something like 40 or 50% obese. And then I'd never heard the term obese until the early 2000s. And it might just be an age thing. Then all of a sudden obesity became a thing. And that's when, I remember it being at school, they took all the chocolate bars away and then started putting in, I don't know, broccoli or something else. So all of a sudden health became, it was the Jamie Oliver era. I remember really being really annoyed because they got rid of the dairy milks out of school. Fuck Jamie Oliver. I can't believe it. But do you know, it, it, I think that's where it started for me. Health definitely became a thing. And I think you're right. All of a sudden posting pictures on social media, comparing yourself to people that are a thousand miles away. Yep. All of these things definitely would have played into that. So we rolled the clock forward. Mm -hmm. and people have integrated the fact that physical fitness is something that's important. Mental mm -hmm. health, everybody always knew was in there, but we then needed strategies to be able to move forward. Mm. A lot of your audience, Gymshark especially, is particularly unique in that it's split. It, it kind of came up um, focused very heavily on male influencers, yeah. and now I would guess you probably sell more... Women's wear. Women's wear, yeah. right? So you have this kind of odd flip, but you have been... Uh, on the front lines of observing male identity, yeah. masculinity, and its challenges. Mm -hmm. What do you think about masculinity in 2023 and the challenges that young men are facing? God. Um, 
I definitely think that coddle, the coddle culture certainly isn't helping from a male perspective. I think, I think we're, we're starting to see more good male role models in what feels like the last three or four months. Like recently, it feels like there's more great male role models that have sort of, that have popped up, which, which I think is helpful. I think, I think I saw something that you said previously around point to me, point, point me towards a great male role model. Whereas now I can think of at least three or four, whereas previously I definitely couldn't. I think that's, that's helpful. And if I think to male role models previously, especially for me growing up, other than, other than footballers as a Brit, I genuinely can't think of any. Mm. Um, What does it say that men need those role models though? I think everyone needs a role model. I think it's important to have role models. And I think you pick different people for different things. I don't think there's one archetypical male that exists somewhere that does everything that, you know, has great yeah, muscle mass, is highly intelligent, yeah, all these sorts of things. And, and that's what personally I'll do. Like I'll have people that inspire me from a fitness perspective, from an intellectual perspective and, and so on. So I think having that helps. Um, I think it's tough. I think because... Personally, for me, I'm as inspired by someone's personal life, particularly now, as their professional life. Like, a, put a bloke in front of me who's a billionaire, it's, it's cool and everything, but you'd rather have 1% of their wealth with a wonderful family life and you, you know, have great time with your family, you love your job, you challenge yourself intellectually. That full package to me is significantly more important than, than just a, a numerical financial figure. But I think that may be, I think men might also skew that way the older they get and as their life circumstances change in the same way that mine have. Because if you said that to 18-year-old Ben... Give me the billions. Oh, yeah. I think I would have taken that every time. So many of the um, trends that we're seeing, I think, at the moment can just be explained by cohorts of guys and girls arriving and then phasing out into new areas of their life. Mm. So you could say that so many people were, and, and this is stupid, right? Because everybody is born each day. There is someone born, mm. but they congeal together into a culture that moves as a group. Yeah. And then there is another bubble behind. Can you imagine what? Well, it's I'm definitely that. Cause I think you and I grew up in different parts of the UK and have been on very different journeys. But I think if, if we were to write down every year since 2006, I'm sure we probably have had, similar views and experiences on correct a lot, on a we lot tracked of a lot of it yeah. we looked up to the same people we read yeah. the same stuff we got exposed to the same stuff yeah. um followed each other on facebook mm-hmm. um so we have this sort of bubble that's going on and then uh, a particular trend a particular influence occurs mm. that group uh finds identity with it and then phases out of it and that falls away and evaporates mm-hmm. so you know uh, andrew tate just got out of prison yesterday or this morning or whatever mm-hmm. um he has a particular cohort of young guys that look up to him. Um, But that cohort over time is going to fall away. They will, maybe he'll grow with them. Maybe they'll find that he's even more compelling as they grow up or maybe not. Mm -hmm. But for us and our age and who it was that we grew up with, it very much was very physique focused, very much about how lean you were, how big you were. It was that Christian Guzman and Matt Ogus and, and like Jeff side and all that. And then that fell away and for us, what we needed, I think, and mm-hmm. for a lot of the guys that are listening, because they're all the same age, we realized that we'd focused skin deep for yeah. so long. Mm-hmm. And maybe we'd got really good at focusing skin deep and we're in really good condition and yeah. we're wearing loads of like cool clothes or whatever. 
but that there was it was a little hollow perhaps inside of that and that we needed something else it's like okay i've developed the fitness side of me yeah now what yeah give me some fucking substance and i think that that cohort if you were to pick the archetypal like peterson rogan harris shapiro alanda botton fanboy there is a huge cohort that would have come out of like the misc bodybuilding forums Oh, yeah. that would have come out of like gym culture and bro culture mm-hmm. thinking this is if only i had the six pack of greg plitt that will fix all of my problems i've got myself to a stage where i'm happy with my body and shit i still have yeah. problems it's is it was it the jim Carrey quote that goes something like i hope you will get to achieve your dreams so that you can realize that maybe it's not so great or it's worse for that effect isn't it mm-hmm. but i feel like it's very similar from a physique perspective as maybe it is a financial perspective i think people are willing to snap their back to get to a certain financial figure in search of happiness. I feel like I can speak from personal experience that whilst it does help in many, many different ways, you will not find happiness purely through financial, you know, the pursuit of financial gains. What are you worth? Do you know what you're worth? I try to think. I don't know. I do not want to know nor think. And I think the other thing as well. Why don't you want to know? Because it's just all numbers on a screen. It doesn't, it doesn't, so much of my wealth is tied up in Gymshark, which has a fluctuating value that changed on the day. If I was to assign any form of self-worth or spend too much time considering it, then my mood would fluctuate more than the weather. And I, I think that that's something for me that I, I would, I never ever think about that. And I swear to God, that is the last thing that I think about at all. Um, but again, I think maybe that is an age thing, a situation thing, being married, kids, all these sorts of things. I've got great ambitions for the business and I want the business to be at a certain level, you know, and that a spit out of that is to be worth a certain level. And that excites me, but it's certainly not why I go to work every day. One of the other things that has happened over the last 10 years, particularly has been the body positivity movement. Mm -hmm. When Gymshark first came around, those leggings that had the line under the ass crack uh, at the bottom that like accentuated bums and so on and so forth. Um, Women and their uh, challenges in terms of roles, I think, I'm terminally online, I spend all of my time thinking about human nature and how it relates to the world around us. We're talking a lot about sort of masculinity and men's problems. I flew out to Qatar to have a debate about this only two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. If I was to like pick a trend at the moment that I think in five years time is going to become the new existential crisis, I think Mm -hmm. it's girls. I think that we have insane rates well we do we know that we do the pew research just came out about this unbelievable rates it's like one in two to like 60 percent of girls in their teens have serious depression or mental health problems mm-hmm. one in two right it's unbelievable so i think that that's coming down the pike i think that it's something that we need to be concerned about mm-hmm. but given the fact that you've seen a lot of changes uh and one of them has been the body positivity movement you have wife that was involved heavily in the fitness world and was doing the influence stuff have you got a viewpoint on that have you got a viewpoint on the challenges that women have faced and and uh yeah the so i think the interesting thing with that is and to be honest there's i think there's points where i've had conversations with not i think we pushed it too far at points and this is the thing with 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 running a company you're running a company here there's this thread of trend of conversation and you need to straddle the line between the trend and the conversation and then the consistency of where you want the company to go and there were definitely points where we strayed i think too far towards that body positivity conversation because i think it got hijacked and went too far Mm. 
Now, the one thing I would say is I was a skinny kid who wanted to build muscle. And we at Gymshark don't believe that a skinny male in the UK that wants to build muscle, we don't believe that his ambition to, and his desire to go to the gym is any better than an American girl that wants to lose weight, right? You're in the gym because you want to improve and everyone wants to develop, whether it is muscle building, you want to run a faster 5K, you want to deadlift 300 kilos, you want to lose, I don't know, 30 pounds of fat, 50 pounds of fat, whatever it is. We don't tier goals. We say that everyone's goal is equal. And again, I think that's become more relevant to me because I wouldn't have said that 10 years ago. It was it was six pack six six pack abs or bust was the ambition for me. Whereas now it's very very different. So I think that from that point of view, that that's what I, where I think the message needs to be. The bit where I start to get concerned is when people start to promote unhealthy physiques, and that's not to say that different physiques shouldn't be shown, but to promote an unhealthy physique and for me to suggest that that unhealthy physique is somewhat right beneficial for an individual that's what concerns me slightly and this is on both sides of the fence right you can look at the guy Male, that walks female, around you yeah. can look at the guy that walks around at five percent body fat and say that this is yeah. a, a, yeah. a well-balanced weight meanwhile testosterone's in the toilet hasn't had an erection in six months irritable some of the people that i know who have some of the most incredible physiques you've ever seen have the worst relationship with their body mentally and you'll know that as well as i do People don't step on stage in some of these huge competitions and, and some of them are absolutely fine. Some of them have deep rooted mental issues, which is why they're putting their body through such trauma. And I think most of those people that are smart realize that they can only do that a certain amount of times before the risk becomes too high. So you're right. It's, it's not just people that are overweight. It's people that are literally bulking up beyond all doubt and then dieting themselves on the verge of starvation in order to win a competition. And there's, you're right, there's extremes at both ends. But I, I think the, the thing that concerns me is just the fact that I don't think we should be promoting the extremes in a way that suggests that, that they're healthy. I think there are certain elements where you can understand, admire, whatever you want to call it, the extremes. So if I, I'm massively inspired by, if I see a picture of Dorian Yates, another guy from Birmingham, Phil he It's just because I mean, of the accent. It's not the photo, yeah. it's the accent. But even closer to home, like Ryan Terry. Yep. Seeing him in pictures is cool. Seeing him in real life, it is insane. Like I look at him and He's my such admiration a big boy. It's crazy. for his mental fortitude to get himself into that position is absolutely incredible. Where I'd start to worry is if he got himself into that condition and remained there for a prolonged period of time. Like yeah. I think that that has to be of concern. Just in the same way that if a friend or family member of mine was to get quite overweight i wouldn't sit there and say that that's okay and that doesn't mean i wouldn't care for them or love them any any less but i would say listen i i would say it's beneficial for your long-term health if you were to get into decent physical condition i don't think everyone needs six-pack abs everyone doesn't need to be able to deadlift 300 kilos but moving being in the gym and having a certain level of fitness i think is only helpful for everyone you have recently had twins yes how old are they now they are 14 weeks today. Right, right. they're fresh. Yeah. They're fresh out of mm -hmm. the oven. I remember listening to a podcast that you did a little while ago where you were reflecting on a conversation that you had with your EA. Mm -hmm. uh, and she'd said something to the effect of, you're not going to be able to do this when you have kids. Yeah. Uh, and you'd said, oh, manana, manana, I'll deal with it when it's in front of me. You don't yeah. need to worry about that. Um, given that you are now at the coalface, what have been the lessons, introspections, changes that you've noticed over the last 
14 weeks. Oh, God. Well, first and foremost, I, I was wrong. So Zoe was right. She was saying, you know, you can't continue to work. I don't know if it was in this rate or in this way. I think it was more in this way when you have kids. And the, and the reason was is very obviously my life and, and gym shot just blended into one. It was a seven-day-a-week job. I'd sit there and I'd work on a Saturday, on a Sunday, on a Monday. It would be fairly loose and free and open. I'd just work all the time. Cool. And I, and I love my job and I continue to do so. So I, I wasn't sat there thinking, oh, God, I'm annoyed that I'm working on a Sunday. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And the fact that I would travel a lot and I'd be away for lots of weekends and things like this. Whereas now, all of a sudden, having kids, I want to be at home on the weekends. But the work is still there. So it's gotten a lot more intense for me in the sense that, again, we just did a trip out. Um, we, did a, we did a trip to Colorado a few months ago. And what we'd normally do is fly out on the Saturday, look around on the Sunday, maybe go out to Breckenridge or somewhere like that, relax, work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, fly home Friday make a leisurely journey back from Heathrow on a Saturday. Whereas now it's fly out Monday, work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, fly home Thursday at lunchtime, land home Friday, walk through the front door and have a child thrown at me sort of thing. So it's, <laughs> it's very, very different. And like it, I would say I've become significantly more purposeful in my time. And, and, it, and that's in every, every facet of my life, right? So if I'm at work, I'm at work. And if I'm at home, I'm at home. And previously I'd be tapping away a lot more on my phone. I've started to like turn my phone off on Sunday afternoons. I'm going to try and do that potentially for a whole day on Sunday just so that I'm present and with them. Um, the travel, more present when I'm at home and at work. And I think things like that, it certainly made me think, and they're, they're still very young, right? They're newborn at the moment. So they're not necessarily noticing if I'm on my phone, but I'm very aware of the fact that within a few months, I don't want my kids to have a dad that was just messing around on his phone all the time. And There's an interesting insight that I learned there, mm. uh, again, from Adam Lane Smith, which is... A lot of the time, parents are considerate and becoming increasingly more aware of their kids using devices, right? Mm -hmm. Do you want your child to have to be only distracted by YouTube for kids or whatever? Mm -hmm. One of the things that a lot of parents don't consider is the fact that if they hear that ding mm -hmm. and the ding causes mom or dad to look at the phone, mm -hmm. the child's relationship to the phone and the relative amount oh, of attention yeah. that the parents have with them is something that is very, very quickly forgotten. I think, and you know, again, don't have kids, can't wait to be a dad. But when I do, my uh, grand idea of how I'm going to have a relationship with technology may get thrown out of the fucking window. Yeah. However, I think that there is like a really, really good argument to be made that if you're in the room with your kid, the phone shouldn't be in there as well. Yeah. That if you want to use a device, step outside of the room because we just do not know what second order consequences that are of your child playing second or third string Mm -hmm. to something that's in your hand yeah and these are all the things that i've now started to think about that i would previously never have thought about and even stupid things like uh, the job is still busy my travel is certainly reduced we're like renovating a farm in the middle of nowhere where we want to be able to have the kids grow up want to be able to grow all our own food and like live a proper like ranch life, life. And, and and just little things like that and it's it's so different to the way that i grew up and it, it might be a combination of me getting older being in the position i'm in i think it's just a position that we are in in the world as well i think with everything that's gone on politically globally with covid and everything i think the amount of people that have just gone fuck this i just want to be self-sufficient and do my own thing to a degree i think is i think has increased dramatically so yeah i think it's definitely changed my perspective on lots of things and a lot of people were saying I know Noel was asking me this. He was he was interested to watch how 
my relationship with work changed and I'm arguably even more hell-bent on making this a success and working incredibly hard at work because I want my kids to look at me and think that's I want to be the role model. I want to be a true role model. Ryan Terry said the same thing. And I want to work hard and I want to be successful and I want them to see that. And I want to do it in the right way. Whereas I think some people thought, oh, is Ben just being honest? I don't have to work. I could retire and live on that farm and live happily ever after. But is that the sort of dad that I want my kids to see? Because that's not real life. And I want them to see that you have to work hard in order to you know, in order to get what you want from life. And I think it's the right thing that for me, and that's what I want them to do. And I want them to find a job that they love. They don't need to be millionaires. They don't need to earn loads of money. That in no way bothers me in the slightest, but for them to grow up seeing their dad doing something he loves, but also having good time with them, I think is really exciting to me. And that's what I want them to do as they grow up. You have the opportunity to give your kids Mm -hmm. materially opportunities that you didn't have as a kid mm-hmm. the lack of opportunities that you had the exposure to your uncle or granddad mm-hmm. that was making stoves and risking it all on a hundred grand stove or whatever that was shipping to germany yeah. has formed you into a person not only that you're proud of but mm-hmm. one that has objectively been able to become quite successful yeah how do you consider marrying the difference between giving your kids the opportunity that you have materially whilst putting them through the challenges that you know were formative and important for you to get to where you are now? Again, that's what I'm thinking about a lot. And so me and Robin have spoken, so they're definitely not going to private school. So that's something that's important to me. And I'm the sort of person that reads into this, right? I read all the papers. There is a dramatically higher likelihood they will be quote unquote successful if they go to private school than if they go to I don't know what you call it a normal school they're not going to go to private school I mean if you speak to Robin she wants to homeschool them I'm I'm not quite on that boat yet I'm happy just I think I'm that's an American an American school. Canadian influence heavily yeah. it's very rare over here in the UK yeah America Canada well, a little she bit less tells right. me that that movement is growing rapidly but I haven't looked into that yet yep um for me, I think it's important to go to a normal school. I think, listen, they're going to grow up in a nice house with nice things and they're going to be able to have connections to cool people and great people in a way. But I think for me, it's about just bringing them up in the right way, in the way that my parents did, in the way that my grandparents did. It, it was really important to me that they were born and they would have the opportunity to spend time with my grandparents, their, their great-grandparents, which, you know, touch wood at the moment, they can. That's really important to me because they have a completely different viewpoint on life. Mm. So similar to pretty much, I guess, every kid in the UK, both of my, or all of my great grandparents on the male side all fought in the war, right? My grandparents, who I spent a lot of time with growing up, would tell me stories about what it was like growing up when they grew up. My nan would talk to me about how in her garden, they would grow one vegetable next door, they would grow another and they would all share at the end of the week because that was the way that it worked when, when they were rationing. My other grandfather, who I work closely with, tell me about when his dad came back from war and the difficulties in the family and the family split up because of different issues he came back with. And I felt fortunate to spend so much time with my grandparents growing up because I didn't, I don't think I had a conventional upbringing of someone that was born in 1992. I had this weird mix of someone that was born in 1992, but then also a 1960s style upbringing because I spent so much time with my grandparents as well. And they that might account for the tradition. Yes, which I think it does. They taught me so much and because of the amount of time that I spent with them. So I think for me to somehow instill those 
values and beliefs in my kids is really, really important to me. Um, how I do that, I don't know, because some things you just have to learn yourself. And one of the things that I learned myself that, I, that other people couldn't, for whatever reason, teach me was I had this feeling of, I just can't wait to get out of, get out of the UK. I can't wait to get out of England. I want to go somewhere else. Me I want too. to be in Australia. I want to be in the US. I want to see the world. And everywhere is going to be so much better than this because England is this and it's that and it's all these things. And I'm really lucky, right? I've traveled into more countries than I could ever imagine. I've spent lots and lots of time across loads of different states in the United, uh, in the US, in Canada, across Asia, all these different places. And I can't help but feel the more I travel, I feel more and more lucky to have been born in the UK. And if you'd have said that to 16, 17, 18 year old Ben, he would have not believed you in a million years. But I'm so, and we, again, we had the opportunity to raise our kids anywhere in the world. And I chose here because I think it's such an amazingly brilliant place to raise a kid. And you're right, there's this, what you want to call it, crabs in a bucket syndrome. There are negatives. The media can be a bit of a pain in the arse. And we've had more prime ministers in the last six months than probably most <laughs> have had in the last six years. All of these different things. But when I look at it, the net positives of being here are so great what are they net positives being in the uk people forget that if you want to start a business business in the uk especially an e-commerce business one we speak english which is great it's helpful for communicating with the, the western world two you can ship things to europe in 24 hours pretty much 70 million people in the uk within 20 uh, like within 24 hours so you've got the whole of europe and the uk on your doorstep a lot of that is down to the fact that there's so many countries in Europe. Each one have, has its own sort of operational setup, whether it's DBD, Royal Mail, or these different companies. Um, so the operational supply chain of Europe is incredible. You can ship to the east coast of the United States in 24, 48 hours. I know people that started very similar businesses to Gymshark at a very similar time in Australia. And I think they were incredibly talented. And I think some part of the reason that we we grew significantly more quickly than they did, not ex completely down to this, is because we were in the UK and we could ship to all of these different countries significantly more quickly. And they were shipping from places like Melbourne that it was taking them three weeks to get to the US and Europe and places like that. Beyond the advantages specifically in the UK of e-commerce companies. Cultural advantages. Culturally, we punch way above our weight. The amount of British actors, uh, presenters and things like that that you see in the US, in the UK, uh, in the... Uh, Australia and places like that it's incredible um, I think we've got an amazing education system I think albeit we've got a turbulent and mental government it's way better than 99% of other countries and I know people moan and I know they're a mistake and th this is the other thing as well and this, this, this is what frustrates me with a lot of people is you meet so many people especially in the UK and the US that go I don't think he's great, right? Biden made the stupid mistake. Surprise, surprise, he's, he's an old bloke, right? Um, Rishi Sunak made the stupid mistake. And I'm like, yeah, but anyone that's worked in any business or in any large-scale organization has made a million mistakes. It's really fucking hard. You couldn't do a better job. And I think, I think we just need to take stock of the fact that for the most part, we have it really, really, really good. And do we have the most competent people in our government that we could possibly have no but where does where where does and i think your alternative is if you were go if you were to go purely on competency you'd probably end up significantly closer to a china or somewhere like that correct 
Correct. And I always say to people, you could go and live in China. And I've never met anyone that says, yes, I'd love to do that. So I think, I think the benefits from an economic perspective of the UK in a country that punches above its weight, that has great connections into the West, to the entire of the West, that has great social influence across the world, we are you a safe uh, country. Are you, yeah, that's not nothing as well. Um, a lot of the concerns at the moment do come in America. A lot of my friends, the reason that you've got Waldorf schools, have you heard of those? Okay, yeah. so there's a bunch of um, alternative, semi-alternative schooling systems, um, very based around being outdoors, um, teaching oh, nice. teaching kids like to you know like hunt and dress mm-hmm. animals and stuff very much back to basics there but like let's be real one of the reasons is that they're very concerned about some of the ideologies that are being pushed to kids in schools correct yes that for me looking at the UK for all that the US coughs and we catch a cold it is mm-hmm. one hundredth of the amount of psychological contagion mimetic horse shittery mm-hmm. that goes on in the US. It's frightening. Is that something yeah. that you have highly 100%, considered? 100%. And I think I think maybe you see this more being in the US and for you living in the US and for me spending a decent amount of time in the US. I think you see more of that. Now, if you were to, again, this is where my, I guess my optimism comes out. If you zoom out, what generally happens, it'll be like this, but it'll, like the S&P, it'll tend, generally trend up and the US will get better and better. And I'm a massive long-term believer in the United States. I think it is an amazing place full of amazing people. I'm just thinking for the, the next 50 years that I'm going to be on this planet, <laughs> how much of that do I want to take? Whereas in the UK, they go to a local school. It's not hunting, but they'll do forestry. Yep. They have the little place in the, in the local village where they get to grow their own, their, grow their own food. They learn good skills they'll do well enough and they'll have decent enough education on English and maths and things like that. They can pursue what they want to creatively. I think it's great. And I think, I think that, listen, there's so many things that excite me about the UK. Um, And I think we've got it really, really good. I really do. And I think there's so many people in the UK and in the US for that matter, that just constantly focus on the negatives. Um, And like I said, I'm, but I'm a, I'm more of an optimist. And I think that the, the long-term, effect will be a net positive as well i think so too but you're right i do have concerns over those exact things and i do think about them and maybe it's different for me because i'm in a privileged position where i can just choose to not allow my child to be involved in certain things that i don't want them to if you live in a place and that school provides that and you're not happy with it and you're stuck with it maybe my opinion will be slightly different that's a concern for a lot of people that mm. they they can't rip their kids out of uh, a situation where they don't agree with the particular uh, ideology, the particular um, cultural milieu that's going on. But I mean, you you've said that you've done a lot of the research. I was talking to uh, Ryan about this yesterday, and he's I think his two year old is at private school at the moment, and mm. at this school, there's kids turning up in helicopters. There's yeah, kids turning up on in Bentleys, yeah. uh, and you know he's I think even more and working and class he's as working class. Correct, yeah, yeah, he's, he's a, scum. He he's plumber. absolute scum. Um, and he Wait, Ryan Terry, by the way, tells everyone he was a plumber. I think the lads were out at a shoot at an Airbnb in LA, and the toilet broke, and he didn't know how to fix it. So I think we should also at some point Shit, dig, dig in to understand how good a plumber. Oh, he was. you think that this is? I think even though he was, a, I'm not debating whether or not he was a plumber. I just think you're right. I think he was a shit plumber. So I think. Ryan, I'm afraid that you need to come through and fix some pipes for us in yeah. order to prove that your backstory is not completely just fab- confabulated. 
he's got this problem at the moment and I mentioned it to him yesterday and I may as well tell it to you too. Um, especially given that you've got twins, which is pretty interesting. Ooh. Are they identical twins? Yeah. Wow. Monozygotic twins. I need to introduce you to Robert Plowman. So he's the number okay. one behavioral geneticist on the planet. Right. Every pair of twins born in the UK between 1991 and 1994 were enrolled into this study mm-hmm. and they ended up holding on to, I think around about 50 to 60,000 pairs yeah. of twins. Mm. And he has teased apart the differences between nature and nurture more than anybody. Right. I'd be interested in that because I haven't got into the detail of it, but there's, there's a, even though you've got the same DNA, there's environmental factors that cause the DNA to basically, I don't know what you want to call it. This is where I, you sort of get to the edge of my competency, but they show in different ways, don't they? And I'm interested to know what, how that works. So the epigenetic changes, how does the environment influence the genes? To be honest, Plowman doesn't really get into that much. And for mm. me, like epigenetics, vibrational frequencies, quantum astral realm, all that stuff is a little bit like the God of the gaps argument to me. It's Mm -hmm. like a place where we don't quite understand as far as I can tell just what's going on. And people use it as a a wedge in which they can drive basically wishful thinking and and desires. So when it comes to uh, kids and um, schools overall, Mm -hmm. when you account for everything genetics socioeconomic status all the rest of it yeah. taking a kid out of one school and putting them into another has less than five percent of a difference in their academic outcomes the biggest influence it seems like that you have in the nurture side of nature and nurture is not you mm. and it's not your wife it's the parents of the kids that your kids hang around with it's the kids that your kids hang around with and it's the oh, wow. coaches the school teachers which is ruthless for parents to find out that they are not the biggest influence on their child's life. Mm. Like the biggest determinant of your future wealth level is not that of your parents. It's the average of the postcode that you grow up in. Why? Well, it's because who are you exposed to? Mm. Who are the people that you take your values and your virtues from? Mm. Now, Again, this is on average. Yeah. If you had a family which was incredibly insular, um, you know, yours multi-generational, four generations mm. of, of people interacting with each other, you spent a lot of time with that, you're going to supplement what typically would have happened socially outside of the home, like still yeah. outside of the home, but within one family structure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but my point being that the number one piece of advice that I would give to parents that want to raise kids with values, work ethic, all the rest of it that they want to have. Carefully vet the kids that your kids spend time with. Carefully Mm -hmm. vet the parents of the kids that your kids spend time with. Carefully vet the coaches of the sports teams, the teachers at the schools. Mm -hmm. Um, That is some of the longest leverage that you can find. If you want to have kids that hold those sorts of values, that that have the upbringing and the principles that you want them to have, Mm -hmm. those are the real long levers, I think. I have no idea. Really important, man. Really, really important. Robin will see that and she'll think, I definitely want to homeschool the boys now. Well, homeschooling's not nothing as well. Like, you know, I'm speaking as an only child here that um, under-socializing kids puts them in advantages in some regards because you have massive amounts of self-sufficiency, total comfort with working in isolation, with being in isolation, with taking risks, says the guy that moved out to America at 33 to like just try and speak to people on the internet. But the problem is that you need to really work hard to offset 
the um, lack of ability in terms of socialization that we'd accumulate over six hours a day in school around other kids being exposed to other cultures. Mm. Here is someone from a Muslim background. Here is someone that's Jewish. Here is someone that's from a, a wealthy family. Here is someone that's from a poor family. Here's somebody that's misbehaved. So here's somebody that's a bully. Here's some, all of those different iterations. Mm. I think my concern, I love the idea of homeschooling, but my concern is how less worldly and street smart do you make your kids it's a yeah, what's the consequence it's kind yeah. of a coddling again in yeah. a regard now a solution for this another thing which is happening a lot in la in america at the moment but especially in austin people are making homesteads where 10 families of my rich friends will find 100 acres somewhere near austin set up with a bunch of kids so you'll maybe have you know 10 15 kids yeah. and they'll homeschool it's not far off just a school yeah. now right like yeah. if it's just you and yeah. a bunch of friends um and i wonder you know how do you blend the two could you offset homeschooling with a different sports club every single night mm. um to try and get that degree of socialization exposure to different cultures different people different situations mm. very difficult i mean you know ryan terry his kid sounds like He's basically on a pro athlete's training schedule, like five or six days a week, gymnastics, swimming, karate, da 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 da, da like each different night. Yeah. But I don't know, man. I, I, this is a whole uncharted territory at the moment, and um, the fact that you've got twins is just going to be such a fascinating okay. experiment for you to watch. And we're going to hopefully touch wood, have a lot more kids as well. We want to have a big family. And again, that's, that's important to me and certainly to Robin as well. Having a big family would be nice. You mentioned that your missus might want a slightly she bigger wants, family than you'd well, anticipated. I thought, I thought three weeks after the birth when chaos was at its all-time high that she would have tapered her ambitions, but she still definitely wants four or five kids. So Apparently, it is uh, the people have a genetic predisposition to having twins mm. as well. Uh, Matt Walsh, guy that works for the Daily Wire, I think he's six kids deep, but that's only been four births. He's had like oh, really? two pairs of twins oh, wow. in that. So you could be um, also my business partner, Darren, he'd had two and he wasn't sure. They were like talking, should we have a third? Should we not have a third? And then his missus had said, like, I really want to have one. Uh, and he realized up until they had the scan, he's like, fuck, we could go from two to four here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he wasn't ready for, he would have to have changed the car. He would have, they would have had to have immediately yeah. bought a new house. All, yeah. all hell would have broken loose. So just, you know, think, think carefully moving forward. Um, what are you looking to do over the next few years? Like personally, in terms of the things that you want to develop, the ways that you want to learn about yourself, about the world impact that you want to have, what's your focus going to be? Do you think over the next few years? Um, well, clearly my professional focus is, solely on Gymshark and building Gymshark out into a great business. We're at this peculiar point now where we're trying to transition into a really global business where, like at the moment, we I mean, we sell globally, but we're not a true global business. So we're trying to really develop that. And we've just, just hired in and built like a new leadership team that uh, I think the last person joined in January. So a fairly fresh new team. So that's important to me, like bedding that in and making sure the business is ready for the next phase of growth. Uh, personally, I just want to get settled in our forever home and get that finished and nice and done. That will take a year or two. Hope, well, hopefully not not two, sort of 12, 18 months. Um, I think as well, I, I know we've spoken about this previously, but I would be interested in 
how and whether my content develops into speaking more openly about maybe some of the things that we've spoken about today without being overly involved in politics and Amer especially not American politics because I am not I'm not an American and I know that a Brit talking about American politics generally doesn't end particularly positively so um, but I guess more around the way that the UK is shaping up especially from a commercial perspective because I think I've got value to add there so I would definitely consider how I can talk more openly about those things have you ever um, been offered you've spoken on boards and stuff hmm. would you ever take a more formal role no, I, I wouldn't have time now. I've been offered lots of board seats and involvement into lots of things. The only thing I've ever said yes to would be the, the government's business advisory board. The only area that I would take time to contribute would be to uh, the UK government, whoever it is. And to be honest, I'm sort of agnostic as to who it is because I don't feel as though I would be contributing to them as individuals. I'd be contributing to the, the country as a whole, yeah, which yeah. I think is beneficial regardless of who's there. Ben Francis, ladies and gentlemen, if people want to keep up to date with the stuff that you do, where should they go? Uh, YouTube, search Ben Francis on YouTube, Instagram, all the usual social medias. Ben, I appreciate you. Thank you, mate. Thank you very much.